0: All right, well, good morning. Today we're going to be looking at Matthew 24. Matthew 24, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of this temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things, assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another, that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, one of the disciples came to him, or the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the signs of your coming, and at the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then they will <clears throat> then many will be offered and will betray one another and will hate one another, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. I am uh, very excited to be speaking with you about the end times today, about the prophecies associated with it. I have uh, always enjoyed reading through Revelation, reading through the different areas where it talks about the future events. And today in our passage in Matthew, God is essentially pulling back the curtain a little bit. He's allowing us to see what the end times will be like. And today we are just looking at the beginning, the initial birth pangs of the end of the times. You know, we talked last week at how when a woman is um, you know, pregnant, she initially has these false labor pains, these Braxton Hicks. These, these things that seem like it is the real thing, but it's not quite. It's, it's, a, it's a false labor pain. But when the actual labor pains come, they're, they're, they're consistent, they're timely. You know when it's coming, and it grows in more and more in intensity. And today, we're not looking at the Braxton Hicks. We're not looking at these false contractions. We're looking at the real thing, these real birth pains that will be taking place. These are the beginnings of the end. So I'm titled this message, The Beginning of the End. And I have so much material to cover in this topic alone that I could spend weeks doing this message, but I'm just going to go through what I can. I'm going to give you, as quickly as I can, an overview of what will take place during these times. And um, we're going to be looking around at a lot of different passages, both in Revelation and Matthew, and so uh, buckle up with me, because we'll be covering quite a bit of ground today. And... um, Just to kind of give a quick recap of what had happened prior to this, Jesus had just given some scathing words to the nation of Israel. He said to them, your house is left to you desolate. And then right after that, Jesus went and departed from that temple. Some people have said that this reminds them of Ezekiel, where it describes the glory departing from that temple. And after these stern warnings, it almost seems as though the disciples wanted to cheer Jesus up. They, they wanted to remind him of the architectural beauty of the temple that he had just departed from. And Jesus says in response to them, do you not see these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And I think what this encounter highlights is that the disciples were kind of fixated on the temporal things of this world, the fleeting things, the corruptible things, the things that are here one day and are going to be gone the next. And Jesus says, you know, this temple that you admire so much, this thing that you are so in awe over, will be demolished. It will be utterly ruined. Not even one stone will be left upon another. Jesus focuses on eternal things, on the things that truly matter. And as we look at these end times, we realize how futile it is to set our minds on this world. You know, I think a lot of us are, we look forward to maybe one day i'll get that mortgage paid off or one day i'll go to this vacation site or one day i'll uh, you know get this career move or that job and and while these things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves sometimes our minds are so focused on here and now the temporary things that won't be around forever and today i think as we look at this passage it's it's challenged me and i hope it challenges you to set your minds on things above not on things of this earth and sure enough that prediction that Jesus made that uh, not one stone would be left upon another came to true. came to pass in 70 AD as we talked about last week. There was not one stone left upon another when the Romans came by and dismantled it. And so in verse 3 we reach the point where the disciples start shifting their focus from the temporal things of this world to eternal things. And they start asking him in verse 3, tell us when these things will be. And what the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? We kind of have to give the disciples a little bit of credit because they didn't know about the church age to come. They really had a limited-based knowledge in terms of what they were asking. In, in In Jesus' first coming, they thought he'd be coming with power and defeat his enemies and he'd rule the world. And so this question, they don't fully grasp what they're asking. They ask this question, when will these things be? Interestingly enough, Jesus does not tell them when the temple will be destroyed. He kind of puts it off to the side. But he does answer the second and third question of, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And they're discussed pretty uh, pretty clearly in this chapter, as well as uh, the following chapter, about what is to come and what are the signs of that coming. I think in order to give ourselves the clearest picture of what's to come, to give ourselves the best idea, um, I I wanted to look at the next major events that God has on his calendar of things to come. And so there is a, a chart I have behind here to kind of clarify for you guys what's to come. We talked last week about the next major event being the rapture. This event is associated or described in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17, where it says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So the rapture... Uh, in the rapture, the church, both those who have died and those who are still remaining on this earth during the church age, will meet the Lord in the air and we will forever be with him. We, you know, we, we talked about how God has a very faithful track record of taking his people out of the picture before his destruction, before judgment comes upon the earth. We, uh, we noted last week, Noah, uh, God waited 120 years before closing the door of the ark. He made sure that before the door was shut that Noah and his family was inside the ark and he preserved them from that ultimate destruction of that worldwide flood. You could think back to even Sodom and Gomorrah. God did not allow fire and brimstone to come down until every last righteous person had left that city. And once that last person had left, God sent down the destruction he had promised. And so... In the same way, God will take us out of the world to be with him before he brings about his next uh, event on the timeline. That next event after the rapture is called the tribulation period. The tribulation period is a seven-year period that is outlined in this chapter between verses 4 and 44. This period comes immediately after the rapture takes place. The tribulation is broken into two parts. Each part is three and a half years in length, and we find that as we'll study through the tribulation period, despite the calamities, despite the horrendous things that will be happening on the earth, the first three and a half years of this tribulation period is actually more tame and more peaceful in comparison to the final three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation, or sometimes called the time of Jacob's Great Trouble. This seven-year period is a period of time where God will finally judge the earth for their wickedness. He will send plagues, natural disasters, wars will be raging on, and he will literally remove peace from the earth as an act of judgment upon it for its sins. Once the seven-year tribulation period is over, 1 Thessalonians 3 tells us that Christ will return to the earth with his saints where he will physically reign upon the earth for a thousand year period known as the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign of Christ. So that is the next major event on God's timeline. Following this millennial reign, there is the final judgment of God where in Revelation 20, verse 12 through 15, it describes the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is a period of time where unbelievers throughout the history of the world will stand before the Lord and because they did not believe upon Jesus Christ as their Savior and because they did not place their faith in him, they will be cast for eternity into the lake of fire where they will be forever separated from God in a place where they will be eternally punished for their sins. That's the next major event. The final event is what we know as the eternal state. This is a time where there will be a new heaven, a new earth, God will wipe away every tear. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And we as believers will forever be with the Lord for eternity in that time. So, that is a very brief overview of the timeline of God's next major events. But I think we need to go over that so you kind of know where we're at in this study and what we'll be looking at in the future. I also think it's crucial as we talk about God's judgment and the things that are to come that many would raise the question or ask in their minds, well, how could God do such a thing? How could God, who is loving, allow for judgment to come upon this earth? After all, isn't God love? Isn't God merciful? Isn't God uh, kind? Isn't God gracious? And I think that oftentimes we have um, a focus on just one aspect of who God is. And we tend to just view God as loving, but we don't look at God in his entirety. True, God is love, God is merciful, God is gracious, God is long-suffering, but God is also holy. God is just, God is separate from sin, God hates sin. And up until this point, God has been patient, God has been slow to anger, God has been abundantly gracious. No one could ever point the finger at God and say, he didn't give us enough time. He didn't allow for all mankind to get the opportunity or the chance. No one could ever say that he wasn't gracious or wasn't um, merciful in allowing time for people to turn from their sins. But there will be a time where God will finally enact his righteous judgment upon this world. He will finally punish it for its abominations, for its willful decision to reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when this time comes, when the tribulation begins, the world will know that God is the one who is enacting these judgments. It is going to be so clear to everyone who it is that is judging them, and it will be so terrifying that it actually says that men and women will literally call upon mountains and rocks and say to them, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the, day, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And these, again, are acts of righteous judgment. So yes, God is loving. God is merciful. God is kind. God is patient. But God is also just, and he must punish sins. And this will be the time when he finally pours out his wrath upon the earth for their disobedience and for the rejection of him. And so what are the signs then of the tribulation period? What events will occur during this time? Matthew gives us a brief overview of it, but Revelation 6 parallels it pretty closely and gives us a more in-depth look at what will take place. And so if you're following your Bibles, kind of hold Matthew 24 with one finger and Revelation 6 with the other because we're going to be going back and forth with those two. As I mentioned The tribulation period of seven years is broken into two parts, each three and a half years. We are going to be looking at the first three and a half years. These first three and a half years are said to be only the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrow is the same word that is used to signify the birth pangs that a woman experiences. Any mother in this room can attest to the fact that actual contractions during childbearing are usually pretty spread out, at least initially. But as you get closer to the actual delivery, the contractions get more and more intense, and they begin to come with less and less time in between each contraction. And uh, it just gets to the point where it just gets back to back to back to back until it immediately and ultimately precedes the birth of the child. These events in the seven-year period precede the coming of Christ. And uh, it's as though, as each one, as each birth pang comes along, Christ's judgment is being brought forth upon this earth more and more rapidly. God's judgment upon this earth is for the unbelieving nation of Israel, but it also includes the unbelieving Gentiles as well. God's judgments are described in three different ways. It's described as seals. There are sealed judgments, trumpet judgments, and bold judgments. So there should be a picture that kind of helps illustrate this uh, because it can be a little confusing. The seven sealed judgments you could think of as a scroll. In the old times, they would uh, take a scroll and they would melt wax, and then a king would put his signet ring into that wax, and it would seal up his wishes or his commands. Similarly, God's will, his command, his plan for the future, has been sealed up. And the only one able to break the seal and open the scroll is Jesus Christ. And there are seven seals. Each one of these seals is either a judgment upon the earth, or it's a major event that will take place. Within this first three and a half years, God will break open the first five seals. And that's what we'll look at today. But in the second half, known as the Great Tribulation, God will open up seal six and seven, and when the seventh seal judgment is opened, it reveals that there are seven trumpet judgments, and each of the trumpet judgments detail another judgment of God's upon the earth. And when you finally reach the seventh trumpet judgment, it opens up to reveal that there are seven bold judgments each of the bulls signify God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. And so, to try and explain this the best I can, if you have a woman's birth pangs starting off in the first half, it starts off relatively slow, you know, just five events, nothing too major. But as we move to the last three and a half years, it happens quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. And as you start seeing, you know, you start off like this. You start off with the seals, And then as you move to the trumpets, it starts picking up pace. And then suddenly you start getting the last three and a half years and it's the all of a sudden it's the bulls and it just starts going. And it's this rapid succession, more and more intense, rapid and, ra- ra- rapid and more rapidly as you move on to these final three and a half years. Believe me, you don't want to be here to witness this. And if you don't know the Lord, this is your wake-up call. This is your warning. A holy and righteous God will be finally judging the world And it will be a fearful thing. Thankfully for those who are believers, we know that we'll be raptured. We'll be taken home to be with the Lord before any of this happens. But if you don't know the Lord, this is your wake-up call. So let's read what will take place during the first three and a half years. Verse 4 of Matthew 24 says, And Jesus answered them and said, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ." and will deceive many. During this time, there is going to be great turmoil in the world. People will begin looking for a solution. People will look for someone to deliver them, someone who can solve all their problems. And in a very convincing fashion, there will be those who claim to be Christ. And there won't just be one, but there will be many false Christs roaming along the earth, claiming to be God, claiming to be the deliverer. I I looked at just recently in the last hundred years how many notable people have come by claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah. And so far, just in the U.S. alone, there have been at least 25 notable men and women who have come by saying that they are the Christ and were notable because they at least had a small following uh, of people who believed that they were indeed the Messiah. And we think, well, these, these are already indications that the end times are here but I'll tell you that these are only the Braxton Hicks, the false labor pains, the microscopic comparison of what it will be like to the tribulation period. The tribulation period will be marked by great deception, and the one behind it all will be Satan himself. So Matthew doesn't really go into too much detail about this, but Revelation 6 fills in the gaps. And so this deception, this Uh, introduction of false Christ parallels pretty well with Revelation 6 verses 1 and 2 where we see the first seal is opened. Revelation 6 says, Now I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud, with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now at first glance, some people might think this is, that this person coming on a white horse is Jesus, and they will think that, oh, look, you know, this is, this is him, and so they assume that it is. But notice that Jesus is said to have come on a horse that is white, but with a sword, and this person is holding a bow. And then people think, oh, no, like, who is this person then? Scholars, and I personally believe, as well as many others, believe that this is the Antichrist, This is someone who will come and be empowered by Satan himself and will have the authority to go out and conquer and deceive many people. And you see, he comes with a bow in his hand which holds the threat of war and yet no arrows, which means that he likely won't actually have to even use force to conquer. He will be a charming, charismatic person that will win over the hearts of many nations. And with that... The Antichrist will go about conquering with the promise of peace. With the world looking to someone who will promise peace, he's going to be the perfect person to come in and promise to set things straight, promise to deliver them, and in turn they will follow him. The Antichrist will make a covenant with the Jewish people and he will promise peace with them. And the dividing point of the tribulation period is right in the middle where he will ultimately break this covenant with the jewish people but at least for the time being the antichrist will provide the world with a temporary sense of peace but like i said very short-lived and so this first seal signifies the introduction of the antichrist and peace that will be offered as he conquers nations bringing the world together under his rule and the nations in turn will crown him and make them their leader An interesting thing to note while we're going through this is that at this point in time, we've already said the church has been raptured. The church acts as a restraining influence on the world, not because of the people themselves, but because they have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. It's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that believers are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And they have this sanctifying power, or influence, I should say, on the world and at the time of the rapture, God will remove those believers. But God will also remove the restrainer, as it talks about, who is known as the Holy Spirit from the earth. The Holy Spirit acts as a restrainer for this world, preventing it from committing all the sins that it's capable of. Second Thessalonians 2, 6-7 talks about this restrainer. It says, And you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And that's to say that this world has no idea to the degree with which it can sin. It has no idea the capacity for evil that it has. Right now, the lawlessness is just brewing in the hearts of men and women. And today, we just see the infancy form of what lawlessness and disobedience looks like. But when the Holy Spirit is removed and, when he, and the believers are raptured, the world will soon find out how capable it is of sin. And sin on this earth will run rampant. Uh, up, to, up until this point, God has essentially drawn a line with how much wickedness he will allow Satan to do. We saw this with Job. God allowed Satan to take away many things from Job. He could inflict him with boils. He was able to make his life miserable. And yet God still restrained Satan from going as far as he would like to and said, you cannot kill him. You cannot take his life. And up until this time, God has been restraining how far the world is allowed to go. He has restrained them in terms of how much sin they are allowed to commit and how much evil they are allowed to do against God. With the church gone, with the Holy Spirit taken out as a restrainer, sin will thrive and it's going to be like the days of Noah where the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And with that in mind, it should be no surprise that the next major event of the tribulation period is war and anarchy. So as you look at the second seal, uh, it describes this event in verse 6 of Matthew. And you will hear of war and rumors of war, and you will see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom verse 12 reads, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Revelation 6 parallels this by saying, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, another horse fiery red went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. The second major event is war and lawlessness, or some people say anarchy. This peace that was promised by the Antichrist was extremely short-lived, and now nation is against nation, kingdom is against kingdom. Many lives will be lost in fighting and in war. And even when there isn't active war in your current country, you're going to hear about the rumors of wars in other places. And you think, well, that kind of sounds like today. You know, we've, after all, we've had World War One, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, so on and so forth. We've had wars throughout the centuries. And even today, you'll hear the rumblings of wars that are to come or people who are at odds with one another. But these are microscopic in comparison to the full scale of events that are going to take place during the tribulation period. The world will not be a safe place. The restrainer will be gone. The church will be gone and this world will show its true colors. This world will show how truly loveless it is. It says that the love of many will grow cold. People will no longer demonstrate love to their neighbor or love to those around them. Kindness and peace will be hard to come by in this time. And it's because this world will become a self-seeking dog-eat-dog world, and it will result in lawlessness and anarchy. Lawlessness and anarchy are really not too far removed from our time on this earth. Uh, If you need examples, look no farther than last year's protests. There were riots in the streets. People began smashing windows, looting, all in the name of social justice. There were numerous deaths related to these violences. At one point uh, in Seattle, the citizens decided that they were going to become full-blown anarchists and claim a portion of the streets and call it their autonomous zone, saying that they will now be their own leaders, they will make their own laws, all while holding assault rifles to prevent the police from coming in to their newly owned territory. One of the memorable slogans that the protesters had was, no justice, no peace, which is to say that with without ever knowing the issue, and without it ever going to the court of law, without knowing all the facts, we as the citizens of this society have decided that we want X, Y, and Z to be done and that will bring us a sense of justice. But if we don't get X, Y, and Z then we are going to riot and we are going to loot your city and we are going to remove peace until we get what we want. This is anarchy. This is lawlessness. And these are only the precursors to how bad it is going to get. If you think about even, let's say, major disasters, hurricanes, fires. If you ever look at the scenes of these places when major disasters happen, people are fleeing, people are running to safety, but also you see another crowd of people running into those places, and they're not firemen, they're not police officers. These are people who are using these natural disasters to take advantage of the situation. These are people who steal from homes, take the goods for their own personal needs, not because they're starving, not because they actually need it, but because they saw an opportunity where there was limited policing or they saw limited uh, people holding them accountable and they took advantage of it. Lawlessness is abounding even in our day to day, but it is microscopic in comparison to how it will be then. The crazy thing is that lawlessness is not just seen in adults. We see even in today's world, very clearly kids demonstrate lawlessness. Uh, If you look back right before the pandemic in 2019, In the U.S. alone, there was a record high number of school shootings with 118 school shootings across the nation, the majority of which were done by children who went to those schools. Also in 2019, there were more mass shootings than there were days of years with a grand total of 417 shootings across the nation. All of this speaks to the sinful nature the evil that is within a man's heart. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I should mention that these are only the statistics of our country. This does not include the world. But more and more, our world as a whole is headed towards lawlessness. As a result of last year's aftermath, people in power are now beginning to be swayed to support things like Defunding police, defunding those who pow- in power who uphold the law. Police are no longer given the ability and the freedom to do their job to enforce the law. This is lawlessness at its core, and the world is headed closer and closer to anarchy. And right now, we should keep in mind again, God is still restraining the world at this time. What will be the potential of this world when God no longer restrains this world? How much more intense will it be? And the result of all this is that peace is taken from this world. And as you read this, it's it's troubling to read. But Matthew says in there, See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. These things must take place. God is going to allow this world to continue on in sin. He's going to allow men to do the evil desires of their hearts, and during this time, the world is just condemning itself more and more and more, and God is aware of it all. And there will come a time where he will finally judge them for their acts of disobedience. All of these things must take place, and again, these are only the birth pangs. The second major event, like I said, war and lawlessness, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it does, because the third seal is now opened, and this is birth pang number three. Revelation 6, 5, and 6 says, And when he opened the third seal, I saw the third living creature saying, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it, had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This third seal speaks of famine conditions, which naturally is a result of war and lawlessness. Essentially, during this time, you will pay a denarius, which is an entire day's wage, just to buy enough, to buy enough wheat and barley to make yourself a loaf of bread. And if you have more than one person living under your household, good luck. Imagine a large family having to ration out a single loaf of bread between the four or the five of them. People will literally be starving, and hunger will become commonplace during this time. However, it seems that even during this time, and even in many most even in most famines, the rich are still with the ability to buy most luxury items like oil and wine. But for the rest of society, they are met with some of the worst famine conditions possible. That's such a helpless feeling to know that you spent in a whole day's labor out there on the work field, just to come back to show with a loaf of bread, and that's the best you can do. You know, and that's that's just to provide food. There's no additional money for spending, no additional money for mortgages or electricity or a water bill. There's no money for shopping or for savings, nothing like that. This is a horrible time to live with. And as the world worries about how they're going to eat, here comes the fourth seal. The fourth seal is open in Revelation 6, Verses 7 and 8, where it says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed him. And the power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill off with a sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. Matthew 24, 7, our passage today, adds, And there will be famine, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places, all of these are the beginning of sorrows. These events are just ramping up, more and more intense, each one. And this fourth seal introduces us to a pale horse with a rider on it named Death, and Hades followed him. Typically, Death is associated with the body, whereas Hades is usually a reference to the soul and the spirit of a person with wars going on, with famines around the world, the fourth rider is given the power to kill a fourth of the entire world's population. As of now, we are at 7.9 billion people. We'll call it roughly 8 billion people in the world right now. If this were to happen right now, two billion people would be dead by the end of this one event. And the way that those two billion people are gonna be killed is through the sword, possibly through war, or they could be slain by this rider. And they will be killed also through starvation because of the severity of this famine. They'll also be killed with pestilences. I mean, I think today we think that we are just so proud of our modern medicine today, and we think that, you know, nothing can touch us. But I think uh, COVID was a wake-up call to many of us to realize just how fragile the body is. And even in COVID... God was merciful, the death rate was relatively low. For those who got the disease, it's something like 2% died from it. But what if it was allowed that the disease could kill off 10%, 20%, 30% of those who got it? The death toll would just skyrocket. COVID, which killed right now, as I'm speaking, 4.55 million people worldwide, is, is, is awful, it's terrible. But we've even seen worse in our history. Remember, back in history books, the Spanish flu. That killed more than 50 million people worldwide. But even with that, there is nothing that can prepare us for what is going to come with the severity of these plagues. The best doctors, the best medicine will not be able to stop these pestilences from causing death. On top of pestilences, there is going to be catastrophic earthquakes that will destroy buildings that will damage roads and will ruin infrastructure. Last year alone, according to the latest statistic, all of the natural disasters worldwide in 2020 cost this world $268 billion worldwide. These natural disasters we're talking about in the end times are coming back to back to back to back year after year after year. Imagine the bill during this time, especially when people barely have enough money to even put a loaf of bread on their table. On top of that, the beasts of the earth will assist in killing off the world's populations. You know, naturally, wild animals have this, this fear of people. Most bears or large animals, they're relatively tame, and it's pretty uncommon to hear about a bear attack or a lion attack. It does happen, but not too common. But during this time, it seems as though God will remove the fear that animals have towards people, and they will begin to attack people. And this might be related to the scarcity of food, that, you know, they're going out hunting and there's nothing to find and so the only thing they find is humans. But God can also use even smaller creatures. You think back to the bubonic plague. God even used (laughs) and can use even small rats to transfer deadly diseases to the point where it killed off 25 million people in that bubonic plague. No matter how it's done, the end result will be that 25% of the world's population will be dead by the end of this event in the fourth seal. I just, just, for, just to wrap it around your head, just think about that for a second. Two billion people dead. You know, right now we're having difficulties with overflowing and uh, finding cemeteries and burial sites for people. But at this point in time, with two billion people dead... You wouldn't even have the time or the manpower to bury these bodies. Cemeteries would be overrun by space. Bodies would likely just be left in heaps, and people would not be able to get around to them. And as bodies stay there, not buried, they begin to decay. The smell of this, the stench of it, would be awful. The diseases that would come from that would be even worse, I'm sure. This is something you do not want to experience. These are horrendous living conditions. These are all warning signs. If you don't know the Lord, what is holding you back? The fifth pang that we'll look at today of the first three and a half years comes in verse 9 and 10 of our passage in Matthew, where it says, Then they will deliver you up up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will... Then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. We learn that there will be believers who come out of the tribulation period. These are people who are separate from the church age because as we know, the church has been raptured already. These, so these are going to be people who, during the tribulation period, come to the saving knowledge of the Lord. Which means that even in the midst of terrible judgment, even in horrendous living conditions, God will still offer salvation to anyone who will accept it. And salvation is available to them just as it is to us and just as it was to the Old Testament believers. Salvation has and always will come by faith alone in Jesus Christ. God's word will still be accessible. God will allow, we have means today, even if the world were to end today, there are sermons online, there are literature online, there are books written about the gospel. People can come to a saving knowledge if they're willing to look for it. Men and women, like I said, will have the opportunity to believe upon the Lord. And all a person has to do is first believe that they are a sinner who has sinned before a righteous and holy God, believe that there is nothing they can do on their own merit to receive that salvation, and believe that Jesus Christ sent his own son, or God sent his own son Jesus Christ to pay for the penalty of their sins. And so there will be believers out of this tribulation period, but it will not be without tremendous cost for their faith. You see, persecution has really always been a part of the believer's life. Throughout the centuries, we've seen persecution. We've seen prophets killed. We've seen martyrs for their faith. Most recently in the past few years, you can look at Isis. Isis Recently, in the last five years, made it a public spectacle of broadcasting the beheading of 21 Christians, all of which refused to renounce their faith. Currently, in Afghanistan, there are reports of Christians being targeted. They are going around checking their phones, and if there's any indication that a Bible is on their phone, they are executed immediately. There have even been reports in Afghanistan of Christians being skinned alive and hung on a pole for their faith. These, brothers and sisters, are only the precursors to how wicked and monstrous the heart of man is. Because right now, this persecution is relatively isolated in certain areas of this world. But during the tribulation period, there will be worldwide persecution. Christians, it says, will be hated by all nations. Because people will look at the judgment that God is doing And then they will look at these Christians strong in their faith that are proclaiming the gospel, that are telling people they need to repent of their sins and people will get offended by these words. People will be so offended that they will hate these Christians and they will hate them so much that in order to silence them, they will kill them. In an attempt to block out the truth about their sin and about how God is judging them, they will in turn murder these Christians. Right now in the world, well, right now in the U.S., actually, 70% of the world, or the U.S., I should say, claims to be a Christian. And people claim to be a Christian. That's very vague. I mean, most people who claim to be a Christian are, you know, my grandparents went to church, so I'm a Christian, or my parents went to church, so I'm a Christian. Or people go to church for the social aspect of it or for the music or for the light shows that they get. But when these same people, if they were put into this kind of persecution, to this magnitude you would see many people quickly renounce their faith and turn from it. People who claim to be Christians in those days, though, they won't be doing it for popularity's sake. Let me tell you this. It will not be a popular thing to be a Christian during the tribulation period. Mark 13 tells us in verses 9 through 12, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to the council, and you will be beaten in the synagogue, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for the testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you'll speak. For whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. There will be betrayal even amongst family members, one against the other, child against parent, parent against child, and the result is not a simple fine or a you know, small penalty or a slap on the wrist. Christians will be taken before rulers, they will be beaten, and then they will be put to death for their faith. There will be no more freedom of religion, no more ability to speak openly about God, no more ability to share your faith with others without the fear of repercussion And persecution for doing so. In Revelation, it parallels this passage by showing us what happens in the fifth seal when it's opened. Revelation 6 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each one of them and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of those, then the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. These are martyrs coming out of the tribulation period, crying out for justice, crying out for the Lord to avenge those who killed them for their faith. The Lord in turn will give them a white robe And tell them to wait a little while longer until the number of those who will be killed in this world is completed. And when that time is completed, God will avenge their blood and he will repay this world for what they have done against his own people. Matthew 24, 13 says, But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now this does not mean that the men and women who are coming through this period of time will be saved on the basis of enduring until the end of the tribulation period. The people in this time will be saved by grace through faith. It is not of their own doing. It's not through enduring. It's purely the gift of God and is not by any work of their own. By faith, believing Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, they are saved. This also does not mean, though, that those who endure will escape physical harm or even death. Because as we read, many of these people will be martyred for their faith. All this verse is saying is that those who refuse to renounce their faith during some of the worst persecution known to man, they will be delivered at the second coming of Christ. For those who aren't true, genuine believers, it will be so popular to recant their faith. Many will think that there is some safety or escape in doing so. But it's those who have genuine, true, believing faith in Christ that will be saved from the lake of fire. And finally, verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This verse actually um, is the only verse that's not very chronological in terms of the timing of the first. Um, first half of the tribulation period this verse actually looks forward to the events of the great tribulation because in the great tribulation period even in the midst of judgment God graciously ensures that everyone at least has the opportunity the chance to hear the gospel and the question arises well what means will God use to spread this good news and there's at least three described in Revelation that I'm just going to briefly cover the first group of people that God will use is 144,000 Jewish believers, 20 or 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, who will go around proclaiming the gospel to the world. And it says, through their witnessing, through their ministry, that a great number, a great multitude, which no one could number, all nations, tribes, people, and tongues were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This means that people of all backgrounds will come to the saving knowledge of Christ during the tribulation period, during the final three and a half years. The second means that God will use to spread his gospel is through two witnesses that are talked about in Revelation 11. These two witnesses are not just any ordinary witnesses. These two witnesses have often been associated with Moses and Elijah, although I don't want to definitively say they are, but they certainly have a lot of... um, signs that indicate or that show miracles that both Moses and Elijah were able to do while on this earth. For example, fire will proceed from their mouth and devour those who try to harm them. They have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls upon their pro- during their prophecy. They have the power to turn water into blood. And if that wasn't enough, they have the ability to strike the earth with as many plagues as often as they desire. And using these two men as witnesses, God will proclaim the gospel and will plead with this earth a final time to repent and to turn from their wickedness and to be saved. The third and final way that God will use to spread his gospel is through an angel. And it's found in Revelation 14, 6-7, where it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel preached to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give Him glory, or, and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Essentially saying here that the whole world will receive the gospel message. There will be no confusion about it. There will be no one who can say, I didn't know. There will be no one who can say, I didn't have the opportunity to hear about it. There will be no one who could say that God didn't give me enough time to repent. No one can plead ignorance. The gospel message will be sent off one final time during this tribulation period. So after going through all this prophecy, after seeing what is to come, believers and unbelievers alike, let me just ask you, are you ready for Jesus' return? If you're a believer this morning Are you living in a manner that would be pleasing for him to see? Are you living each day as if today could be the day that Jesus makes his soon return? We should be living every day as if today would be that day, as if he is coming today, because we know that he is coming very soon. And to those that don't know him, all I can say is, what are you waiting for? You don't want to go through these tribulation period times You've listened to what I said about what's going to come. You don't want to be there for that. You don't want to experience the judgments that God will bring upon this earth. Today is your wake-up call. God has promised that these things will happen. And whether you choose to believe it or not, it is going to happen because God's word is true. Will today finally be the day that you repent of your sins, that you turn and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you don't know the Lord, will you accept his free gift of salvation that he offers you? He is patiently waiting for you. The Bible says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you don't know him, come to him today. Let's just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for all that uh, you've spoken in it. Lord, we know that it is a fearful thing to not know you, Lord, to, to endure these horrendous things. But we know, Lord, that you are just and you are judging the, word, judging the world fairly for what they have done. Lord, we, we're thankful that we, don't, we as believers will not be there. we thankful that, Lord, we will be raptured to be home with you. I just pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, if there's anyone who's still holding out, anyone who is still on the fence about trusting you, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would come to the saving knowledge of you today. And Lord, as we wait for you to come, Lord, I pray that we would live lives expectantly waiting, or lives that are ready for you come, to come. I pray that, Lord, we live lives that are honoring to you. I just pray all these things in your name. Amen. Due to the hour and lateness of it, I will uh, just dismiss the meeting here.